Well, we're going to turn to our Bibles just now and read from 2 Corinthians. Uh, if you've got a pew Bible, it's uh, page, um, page 1165, 1165. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 16 to the end of the chapter. This is the passage that Lincoln will be opening up for us in a moment or two. Paul speaking. I repeat, let no one take me for a fool. But if you do, then receive me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I am not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. You gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or pushes himself forward or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. What anyone else dares to boast about, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak, and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin, and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me, but I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. Amen. We trust that God will bless to us this reading from his word. So we all know that, that boasting is wrong. But if we're honest with ourselves, boasting can be a little bit fun sometimes. It gives us an opportunity to boost our egos again and, and being able to display the prowess that you may have in a certain or a particular area. One of my favorite sarcastic boasts to make to people is to tell them how great I am at being humble. So if you'll please tolerate a humble brag, uh, 
Do you believe me when I tell you that when I was in high school or secondary school, I was, was quite good at, at theater or drama? Uh, good enough to secure leading roles all four of the years except for the first one. So three out of four, not too bad. Uh, and even good enough that I had a fan club of elderly women who ate breakfast together at the hospital, uh, whom I met having breakfast with my mother once before school. So with three years of leading roles, you'd be right to assume that I have some fantastic memories of the different shows I was in, uh, memories with the different cast and actors that I acted alongside of. But if you were to ask those who participated with me in all of those shows and the director who directed all of them, there'd be one particular memory that sits above the rest. So picture this, it's opening night of my final production, my senior year. Got the leading role once again, and I'm playing the father in Cheaper by the Dozen. Uh, The father is a character that is obsessed with efficiency. So everywhere he goes, he's walking quickly. He's constantly telling his family how they can be more efficient. Uh, He worked in a factory to get them to be more efficient. So lights come on. I blow my whistle. I call my children onto the stage. And the show begins. And within the first couple minutes, I'm I'm telling my, my children and my wife that We need to be saving a little bit more time with our morning routine. So I I volunteer to them that I'm going to demonstrate to show them how to bathe in the most quick and efficient manner. And if my memory serves correct, it was from bottom to top while you were in the tub. So I I was to grab a rug and I, I pulled it out and I was supposed to sit down. And as I sit down, my trousers ripped from below my zipper to below my knee. And... I had to keep acting. So my castmates are in tears with laughter, trying to hold it together. And as this father obsessed with efficiency, I can't lope about. So I'm walking with pace and with direction as my trouser leg is just flapping wildly in front of all of these people. Three years of leading roles and great memories and remembered for the most humbling one. I actually did get that pair of trousers as a graduation present from my director. And just as a quick aside, the last time I told that story on this island, I neglected to use the word trousers and use the American equivalent, which was relatively embarrassing. But that's neither here nor there. So I I laugh at that story, and I do thoroughly enjoy telling it. But it provides for us, I think, a connection to Paul's message. You can make a fair case that Paul was the most successful missionary, church planter, evangelist in church history. He performed signs and wonders that we hear about in 1 Corinthians. He's planted several churches. He has the most desirable spiritual gifts. He wrote most of our New Testament, and he was appointed to the ministry by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Yet those aren't the things that Paul boasts about. Paul goes to great lengths to show that his boasting is founded on something far better than any of his accomplishments. He will boast in Jesus Christ. The title of this sermon is Boasting in a Basket. And I'd like for us to focus on the idea that because Jesus was a humble servant or Jesus was a humble Savior, we must be humble servants. 
And as we walk through this lengthy boast, I'd like to do so in two parts. First, in verses 16 through 21, we'll see Paul using harsh humor. And in verses 22 through 33, we'll see Paul making a baffling boast. Harsh humor and a baffling boast. So it it feels a little odd to think that the God of the universe would use sarcasm and a bit of mockery to get his point across to a people that he loves. But that's exactly what we find in our passage. Uh, If you look back earlier in this chapter, you see that Paul is combating these false teachers that have infected the church in Corinth. And he, he calls these opponents of his these super apostles. And it's because these men and women had made lofty claims about themselves and they were mocking and ridiculing things about Paul. We see this contrast come to light in chapter 10 where Paul is accused of being timid when he's with the Corinthians. And they say that the only time you use this bravado, these difficult and harsh words come from you hiding behind pen and paper. He didn't come with a stack of recommendation letters from other churches, and he didn't charge for the teaching that he provided them. So with these super apostles citing this as being a bad thing, that must mean that they saw these as good things. They were bold. They were charismatic. They came with a stack of recommendation letters, and what they had to offer was simply too good to just give away for free. And to Paul, this is absolute lunacy. So instead of shouting till he's blue in the face, Paul says, okay, I'll play their game. The game that all of you, Church of Corinth, seem to be such big fans of. I repeat, let no one take me for a fool. But if you do, then tolerate me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I am not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many are boasting the way the world does, I too will boast. Paul wastes no time in dishing out his harsh humor. He finds the super apostles to be so distasteful that the only name he's willing to give them in this passage is fools. So he makes it abundantly clear from the beginning. Don't take me for a fool. Don't identify me with these people who have infected the church that I care so much about. And then at the same time, he makes a shift. If you are going to put me in this category with them, fine. I'll play this fool's game. And I know that you're going to listen because you all love fools as is evidenced by your embracing of these false teachers in the first place. And he doesn't stop there. In verse 17, he makes a clear distinction between what the super apostles preach and teach and the way that the Lord Jesus Christ would have done so. As he's done before, he's not so subtly telling them that they have rejected Jesus by following these fools. All the boasting that he was about to do, this entire exercise in bragging, this making a name and a case for oneself, is in contrast to the gospel. And after making his justification for needing to dive down into the pigsty of self-aggrandizement, Paul takes another jab. 
And we see in verse 18 that many people are boasting as the world does. And it may seem like a small detail, but in the way that Paul says it, it suggests that the super apostles weren't united together on a common front or with a common message. They're trying to outdo each other for power and influence and followers. So that means the Corinthians had been duped not by this united force, but by a message that wasn't even agreed upon. So with exasperation, Paul's sarcasm reaches a climactic point in verse 19. You so gladly put up with fools because you are so wise. And I think we see a double meaning in this jab. On one hand, Paul is mocking them because putting up with fools is precisely the opposite of what a wise person would do. If they had been truly wise, they would have thrown out these super apostles long ago. And at the same time, he's setting up a mock that he will make of himself later, something we'll see in just a few verses. I want to pause here for just a moment. Think about how it would have felt to have heard this letter for the first time, especially this particular section. The church in Corinth wouldn't have had their own personal copies to take home and read with their morning coffee or as they watched a rainstorm. The whole church would have been gathered together and this letter would have been read to them. And I'm, I'm sure all of you have experienced a time or two in church when it feels as though the pastor is speaking directly to you. Maybe it's a particular sin issue that you're wrestling with that's been talked about during the sermon. Maybe it's something that challenges your faith and you feel called that you must accept that. And though those moments are so often uncomfortable, they're helpful and necessary, but, but still uncomfortable. Well, the Corinthian church didn't have to wonder who this letter was about or who Paul was speaking to. He's very explicit about it when he opens the letter to the church of God in Corinth. And just imagine being the one who had to read it to them. It's possible that it could have just been one of the congregants uh, forced to stand up in front of people you know and to read Paul's words. But it's also possible that it could have been Titus, the one who originally took Paul, uh, the update from Corinth. And you can almost hear him as he's sitting next to Paul and he's watching him write, just asking, you want me to say what to them? You want me to say that to them? Okay, I, I trust you. And after all this harsh humor and sarcasm, Paul approaches the church with an exaggerated reality, one that is not far off from the truth. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or slaps you in the face. The church following these super apostles did not upset Paul because he was jealous that his spiritual children were following someone else. Though the words of this verse come across as, as rather harsh, they come from a heart that is filled with fatherly love. His spiritual children were in real spiritual danger, and he was going to do whatever it took to save them, even if that meant saving them from themselves. 
The super apostles were abusing the people of the Corinthian church. First, he says, the church would put up with those who enslaved them. Now, slavery is not an enviable position for anyone to be in. And the type of enslavement that Paul talks about here carries with it a connotation of being defeated in battle and then forced to serve. One of the things that would have been so heartbreaking for Paul is that the Corinthians weren't even caught unaware. The super apostles hadn't snuck in and infiltrated the church while no one was watching, like the warnings we see given in the letters of Peter, John, and Jude. Instead, the church seemingly welcomed them in with open arms and extending out their hands for shackles. This military note is an appropriate one. Paul's work did not consist only of teaching and preaching, but he was also preparing for and waging spiritual warfare. The influences of the super apostles was a battle lost in this war, and he needed to make sure that his people saw that. Second and third, they're exploiting and taking advantage of the Corinthian church. Now, this is likely regarding the local church supporting apostles and evangelists who came to teach and preach at their church. The super apostles were selling snake oil to this church, something that is utterly worthless, and they're being rewarded with food, lodging, and wages. And this is one of the dangers of Christian generosity. Christians, because they so much long to emulate Christ, can be easily taken advantage of. And this happens often because of Paul's fourth harsh assessment. These people who put on airs, who have great charisma and energy and are attractive, all of these different things, they're easy to listen to. They draw you in and you're hooked before you know you're in danger. It's why Paul's warning in the previous section is so important. Christians need to be checking all of the teaching and all of the preaching that they hear against the perfect standard of Scripture. No matter how attractive the message is or how attractive the one giving it is, it does not matter if the teachings of Christ don't line up with it. It is enslavement, if that's the case. Paul ends by saying they've fallen so far down this path of foolishness that they would happily tolerate being slapped in the face. So the next verse is rather striking then. To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. Whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast about. Again, this sounds harsh, but it comes from a heart of a loving father. It plays out the same way that any intervention would. You have someone who thinks that they know what's best for themselves, that they are smarter than everyone else in the room and everyone else around them. But then when everything does inevitably fall apart, they're confronted with the situation that they've got themselves into. And they need to be made to recognize the consequences and severity of that situation. Paul says, if you want to act like a child, I'll treat you like a child. If you want to play the fool, I will engage with you like fools. The harshness of this tone would not be to cause shame, but to be a desperate attempt to wake them up. 
In Galatians 5, Paul says, It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So he's saying to the Corinthians, Don't you realize that you have been set free? You have been made for so much more than whatever the world is trying to sell to you. The good news that I gave to you, the good news I gave you for free is not worthless, but it is priceless. It is a desperate plea that we see Paul make, and he's willing to go to any lengths for the sake of the gospel, even if that means he's called to boast like a fool. So Paul's harsh humor was paving the way for him to act as a fool, to be able to boast with the best of them. Not only is he defending his ministry, but he's showing that he was far superior to these super apostles. A a superior super apostle, if you will. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. This threefold boast would have been something the people of Corinth might have expected. All of these things were things they already knew of Paul, but he's simply reminding them. As a Hebrew and as an Israelite, he's reminding them that he is familiar with all of God's promises to his covenant people. All the blessings that have been promised to them. And as a true descendant of Abraham, he's just reinforcing this. While God's plan had always been to bless the whole world through the children of Abraham, every tribe, tongue, and nation, the promise was first given to the Jews, and Paul was as Jewish as they came. So after an opening boast like this and the following statement, are they servants of Christ? I am more. We might be expecting a lengthy list of all of Paul's great accomplishments. Something like, I, Paul, apostle called personally by the Lord Jesus Christ, a man who is known and respected among the Lord's original twelve, the founder of many churches, a missionary across the Roman Empire, one who possesses the most sought-after spiritual gifts, the discipler of such great preachers like Timothy and Titus, and the spiritual father of countless numbers, and so on and so forth. But this isn't the path that Paul chooses to walk down. In verse 23, you have likely either a, a parenthetical statement or something that's set apart with hyphens. Paul makes a comment that he is out of his mind to be talking like this, or he's talking like a madman. And I wonder if the boast that we just talked about might have crossed his mind. And we can't know this for sure, and I may not know what the frustration of being a father is, but I do know the frustration of being a middle school teacher. So I, I can feel like it's safe to assume that that boast may have crossed Paul's mind, wanting to put these people in the place by showing them all these credentials he has. But even if it was there, it's clear that his pride in Christ far outshines anything that he as a man has accomplished. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to be talking like this. I am more. I have worked much harder 
been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked, and I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, and in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. He boasts in none of the things that the super apostles would have boasted in. In fact, all the things he boasts in are precisely the things that the super apostles are trying to use to discredit him and his ministry. He'd been in prison not once, but frequently. He'd been flogged and brought near to death on multiple occasions. He hadn't been sitting in an ivory tower unaffected by the troubles of the Christian in a world that was so aggressively hostile to it and its follow, and Christ's followers. He'd been in the middle of it all, taking a punishment that could rival nearly anyone. The 40 lashes minus one was a type of discipline described for the Jews in Deuteronomy 25. 40 lashes was the maximum sentence that one could receive And to give any more than 40 would be displeasing to God. So this prohibition of 40 minus 1 isn't an act of mercy, but it's to stop the group of people that would have been beating him from going over that 40 threshold. So he's been beaten five times by the people who are supposed to be his people. The people who in a later letter to the Romans that Paul said he would have traded his very own soul over to the devil if it meant that the light of Christ would shine in the hearts of the Jews. He has no friends among the Jews. And he'd also been beaten with rods and stones. And not only had he suffered at the hands of people, but he'd been shipwrecked multiple times. Yet he still constantly travels. He's safe with no one, not his own people, the Jews. Not the people that he feels called to minister to, the Gentiles. Even in his churches, false believers attack him and his ministry regularly. And just in case they missed it the first time, he summarizes it again for them in verse 27. I have labored and toiled and have gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. I don't know if y'all would have a map uh, like they do at my church back home, but it has a picture of the world and then the missionaries that are placed all around it. Something to encourage the church to pray for the people who have gone out to serve God. Now, just imagine for a moment that one of those missionaries that you know, maybe personally or one that you've prayed for consistently, sent back a mission update that sounded even remotely like Paul's boast. If those were the trials that they were experiencing, I think we'd be hard-pressed to fault them if they finished their letter by saying, I'm pretty tired I think I'm going to come home now. 
don't say that as a discouragement. I don't say that as a call for people, missionaries who are in difficult and dangerous countries to leave, or pastors who are in difficult and dangerous congregations to leave, but to recognize the realities that ministry is hard. And the gospel is extremely offensive to those whose hearts have been hardened to its message. Yet after facing all these hardships, Paul laments his greatest concern in verse 28. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. If there was a doubt that any of his harsh humor or rebuke came from the heart of fatherly love, this proves that it's the case. Beatings, shipwrecks, abandonment, all these terrible circumstances, and his heart is still daily concerned for all the churches. Not just those that he was responsible for forming, but the Lord's entire global church. And although he did have a lofty position in the church, he identifies himself with the same struggles that every Christian, you and I, face day to day. Who is weak? And I do not feel weak. Who is led to sin? And I do not inwardly burn. Paul sees no need to puff himself up, to make himself grander than he appeared. He may not have been the best public speaker or the most eloquent or the most popular, but there was no way that he was willing to leave room for doubt that he was a faithful servant of the Lord. And in wonderful keeping with this baffling boast, our passage closes with a remarkably anticlimactic ending. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. In contrast to all fleshly and worldly reason, Paul only sees need to boast in Christ. And that boasting is about his and our weakness. One, because it shows that we are in total reliance on our Savior. And two, because it reflects our Savior. Christians have the call not only to represent Christ on the earth, but we're also called to represent him to the world. He was a man of humility and sacrifice, one who knew the depths of all of our sufferings. Participating in those sufferings may not be fun, but it is a privilege to know that we get to be like our Lord, even in his suffering. Paul's escape from the city isn't this grand thing. There's no angels that come to his rescue. There's no earthquake that shakes the prison gates off the wall. You have a fully grown man being lowered out a window 
in a basket, sitting powerless and reliant on others. That's the image that Paul chooses to present. He's a weak man who boasts in a Savior who has accomplished everything on his behalf. As we close, I want to leave you with two things. Pray regularly for your ministers and other ministers and all ministers. And do the same thing for your church's missionaries and all those who are in the mission field. It is so often a hard, lonely, and thankless job. And I don't say this because I want any of you or future congregations that I serve in to tell me how great I am from time to time, but truly because ministry is a difficult calling. And the faithful who do it don't do it for money or fame, but because they have a deep, deep love for God and a deep, deep love for his people. My final charge is to embrace the weakness. Christ's grace is sufficient for you. Even when it feels like he's not holding up his end of the bargain and he's not giving you all the grace that you need to survive. Boast and be proud in the one who has conquered death and sin on your behalf. Who has prepared a place in glory for you with an inheritance that will never spoil or fade away. Rely on and trust in him. And rely on and trust in his church. Our Savior is both the lion and the lamb. He is the conqueror and the sacrifice, and he will carry you to the finish line, whether he does that on the wings of an angel or helpless and in a basket. Please bow your heads and pray with me.